Welcome to Across the Pond, Marketing Transformed, a podcast that explores ways to transform your business and marketing strategy, whether you are a rising star, entrepreneur, or experienced professional. A show packed with stories to inspire success and build a growth mindset for you and your company. Featuring global brand CMOs, transformation experts, and business founders, your co-hosts, Chris Lawson in London, UK, and Samuel Money across the pond in Philadelphia, USA. Hey, Chris, we're here for episode 42. How are you doing this week? Good, Sam. Are you okay? Yeah, absolutely. I think this week's show is building on that agile marketing action plan that we've got started. So excited to get into it. Excellent. Go for it. So in the prior episode, we talked a lot about vision, mission, and values, and how that needs to really shine through into your organization and into your way of being. And over the past decade or so, brand purpose has become the language that's being used to clearly articulate the ambition of organizations and their aim to achieve a greater good Um, beyond sales, beyond market share, and beyond profit. And so purpose, brand purpose, elevates all of this. And it's a core component of brand building that we'll go into a lot more into this in this week's episode, where we're going to go into brand building. Mm. Brand building and positioning, it's all about helping to clearly define the brand's equity, what it stands for, its value and its meaning in the hearts and minds. And ultimately, the wallets and the purses and digital accounts of the consumers and shoppers in the highly competitive landscape in which brands and businesses now exist. So to do that well requires actually writing it down, crafting it, crafting your brand's philosophy, often known as a brand pyramid or a brand wheel or a brand compass or brand positioning. So don't worry so much about the shape or the specific name. It's just really more important to have the core components of it captured and articulated. And so just a reminder or a refresher on what we mean by brand purpose. That's the key first part. And that's the positive impact on others and society beyond making money, right? So nonprofits, obviously, they use money to deliver their organization's goals. Uh, and obviously, for profits, well, the clues in the description for profit. Yet in the past decades, uh, we've seen the positive impact that the brand has on its consumers, it's the community in the world, and that's become so much more important. Brands that do purpose well really succeed by attracting people to work with them who are inspired and they're rewarded via the personal and the professional and also the financial missions of the organization. Mm. It's often where the brand is experienced beyond slogans and beyond manifestos. And so when we think about purpose, the, the brand is often addressing injustices, championing equitable causes, solving environmental issues, and delivering economic gains. And so purpose, yes, we've, just, we've made a point about it, but that's a key fundamental part of any great brand positioning. And so there's some other foundations that we think you should have in place when you think about brand positioning. There's a concept called brand essence, and this is like the inspirational and memorable articulation of what you want the brand to stand for in people's hearts and minds of the consumers you're going after. So long-term vision of of of, of, um, what you express. So for Ben and Jerry's, which you talked about a lot, but I think it's still relevant here, guilt-free indulgence is essentially what their essence is. And a cooking brand that I've worked on, it went with food that stirs the soul. So the statement that's short, but it really sums up the essence of the brand. Mm, Another key... 
Yeah, another key area. So when you're thinking about your brand and and its positioning, think about its character, brand character, brand attributes, and some of the guardrails, or it's also known as like the brand personality, if, if another term used for it. And it's like the relatable and personable aspects of the brand, its personality. A, a good way to frame this is to document what the brand Um, actually stands for in terms of what it always is. So for a fictitious food brand, you might always be high quality and using real ingredients. So that's one column. Another column is what the brand could be. And for this fictitious company, it would potentially have fresh or it may actually use preservatives in its food. So that's the middle column of what it could be doing. And then what it would never be. And so this is the third column, absolutely would never be using artificial ingredients or genetically modified ingredients. So that's just a way to think about the guardrails behind your brand and the character, what you always would be, could be, or never would be. Those three columns, I think, are very, very clear and fundamental to have. And the other way to to think about brand positioning is what benefits you offer. And what's the most important benefits for your target audience in terms of functional and emotional benefits that deliver on this equity? So functional being, you know, what does it provide me in terms of, say, the performance and the functional attributes, be it like the camera lens that comes with it or the, the features that it has or the software that it has? And I'm using those examples for a reason because another key benefit that brands provide is the emotional side, a rich territory of how it makes you feel. And that's why brands such as Apple win, because often they don't have the best camera lens, they don't have the best software or the best lay- screen layout, but they just do something that makes you feel so so inextricably linked to the brand. And they often use things like design that makes you feel something very special about the brand. And you do crazy things like holding onto the box that it came in for years and years and years, which you would never do for a Toshiba or a, perhaps a Microsoft, but you'd absolutely do for an Apple. Yeah, good example. I mean, it comes up a lot, but that's because it's such a good example, to be honest, isn't it? Um, I think one thing that I've really liked in that, well, not one thing, there's lots of things, but the thing that stood out, Sam, for me was about the, mm-hmm. um, the always, the could, and the never would be in terms of like how mm-hmm. to frame your your brand. And we talk a lot about sort of brand DNA as well, as being sort of part of our essence. And, and for me, Branding is about recognition. It's about memorability. It's about evangelism and and uh, doing what you say you are going to do as well. And that, and that last point is incredibly important. Uh, there was a survey by Accenture um, about why people buy from a brand. And the highest reason that someone would buy from a brand is because they have a strong culture and do what they say they're going to do. And that got a 66% rating. And I, and I thought that was fascinating, actually, out of all of the different reasons you think why someone may well buy from a brand. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a, a good one that that came out. And yes, if you need any more evidence as to how important having a good purpose is, that, that same survey where it looked at sort of uh, nearly 30,000 of the Accenture customers found that 62% of customers want company to take a stand on current issues um, such as sustainability or fair employment. And, and, and of course, the closer that a company's brand a purpose, it lines to their own belief for better. It's all about that association, that fandom, which we've talked about before. And of course, it's also about detractors. So if half of the, um, so in that survey, half of those um, more than half those that um, are disappointed with a brand end up going on social media 
and close on half almost then can walk away as a result of it. So people are voting with their feet more as well. And Unilever, um, a brand or, or a company we covered in episode 38 when we we're looking at sort of embracing the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, in short, you know, a huge amount of brands within its portfolio and nearly half of its top 40 brands focus on sustainability for sustainable living brands that cover things such as Knorr or Dove or Lipton. And they're growing 50% faster than the company's other brands and delivering more than 60% of the company's growth, which I think is staggering there. Mm. Um, so just as people used to buy brands as status symbols, they're now buying them in order to make a positive impact, which uh, I think is a is a good thing. Yeah, and as you're talking about the brands and the work that Unilever there, we, we keep coming back to a recurring theme. From all this advice, we can't help but highlight and advocate for the power of purpose and purpose-centric brands out there. We talked about it in episode 15, our purpose-led brands, the future. And in episode 29, we talked about be creative and act with purpose. And so we do bang on about this because we feel that there are certain elements that just have to be present when you're doing your, your brand positioning very well. Uh, and so brand purpose really is all about when you're doing that well, you can sum it up in a powerful call to action and a slogan and some verbiage that really resonates with a lot of people. The, your purpose really addresses a tangible long-term issue that people have. It, it is also very clear, crystal clear about what the brand actually does and not just says to create and drive change. Um, it also will will light up social and digital me media and, and and be very very social, very very communicable and very shareable. The people will be talking or tweeting or, or you know mentioning it across the different platforms. And importantly, it will actually lead to a path to be to sell more or to gain more engagement and to actively grow and drive advocacy for the brand. Good stuff, Sam. Um, so let's get to the five-step plan for bringing that brand to life. And, and I think the first step is, is very much do your homework. And, and that's understanding that the context that you live in. First of all, it's about your customers, the advocates, the rejectors, your primary audience and your secondary audience. And then it's also about your competitors. Uh, understanding that was made up of both direct and indirect customers. And, and really, it's a series of questions. And you, know, you need to understand why do your customers buy from you? Which customers do you want and how do you find them? And what typifies the brands of your competitors? How are they perceived? How do they stand out in Google rankings? Who do your friends buy from, from and why? And depending on the budget, this can be a cheap or an expensive exercise to administer. You know, honestly, at its simplest form, as we talked about last time, you can do a lot of this by Survey Monkey and going out to prospective audiences and seeing how you get on. Or you can engage in a more sophisticated sort of sampling where you're looking at sort of statistical confidence, et cetera, depending on the size of your organization. But here's some good questions to, to ask in order to get a feel for it. But, but it's important that you craft these for your particular market. Um, ones that I particularly like, though, which stand the test of time is what makes you stand out in the world? What's the three words that you associate with your brand? What three words are least associated with your brand? What problem do I solve? 
why did you use that brand the first time and when does the brand fail you? Um, yeah, there's plenty more, but I think those really sort of encapsulate where you're trying to get to. The second stage in the plan, Sam, is about putting it on a positioning map, making it visual. Um, and, that, and that's what successful brands do in order to find the clear space. Uh, they find the niche where no other brand is in. And there's nothing better than a visual map to actually show you where the clear space is. You can sort of almost see where a lot of your competitors, a lot of market are clustering around if you get the, the right axis. Um, good example of that, Absolute Radio. That was aimed at 30-something men into sort of guitar-orientated music, real music, as we sort of classified it at the time. We plotted all the other radio brands on a map, and there was a gaping big hole where Absolute was to go. And that's why it was successful. We moved it from Virgin Radio, which played Brian Adams, Queen, and then more Brian Adams, and it was pretty repetitive and relatively middle of the road, but still sort of a, a lot of sort of rock within that to a much more eclectic mix of guitar music, songwriters with passion. And, and that's why it carved out a strong brand. Now, it wasn't the biggest niche, but it was definitely a niche that was there, which we felt there was clear space. And uh, um, time has shown that that was true. So how you create that positioning map is the first goal, um, step in it is to try and determine the various positions that exist in the market. So try to start off by listing all the products and services you offer, as well as those offered by your competitors. Think about the different features and benefits and the different price points, but then look to plot that on a visual map. Now, the access that you will use will ultimately de depend on the, um, the market that you're in and what's, what's important. Classic ones would be plotting against sort of size of organization or growth of organization or your sustainability credentials or whether you're more SaaS orientated or enterprise orientated. But the important thing is, is that whatever's right for your um, particular market um, and whichever criteria you use, the more accurate the data you've got, the better that you're going to end up um, and let that picture take shape. The third step, Sam, is about defining what you stand for in relation to the research and the positioning. And, and there's a number of tools and techniques to help you take to the next level, and I'll, I'll come on to that um, a bit later on. Um, but first of all, you need to be clear what you stand for. And that's making a list of why someone should buy from you and making a list of what defines you from a competition. And then looking at how you encapsulate that, uh, how, how do you make sure that you, you see something that is different in there? And, and some things are commodities, and therefore you need to work much harder at this. Um, and, and this is where purpose comes in as well, because obviously that helps support that and helps create that differentiation. But it's important to look at this from the perspective of what defines the category and what approach would you take to disrupt it? Or if a category wasn't established, what would you do differently? And of course, that's again how we come back to um, purpose there as well. And there are a large number of sort of agencies that specialize in this and a large number of tools. Um, there's a website which I think is, is really strong called overthrow2.com. Um, we'll put that uh, in the uh, notes and the transcript later on. Um, but why I think that's really strong, it focuses very much around challenger brands and bringing that to life um, and gives you a variety of different sort of 
characteristics, whether you're going to be a sort of a local hero or a people's champion, and it helps you classify that and gives you some example of those as well. And I think I think that's very valuable. And, I, and if I look at my sort of career, being that, that disruptor is that David and Goliath battle, I, I find it incredibly exciting. And whether it was a, a Guardian or Virgin Wines or Absolute Radio or Inspired Gaming, all of them fell into that category. We were all the sort of the, the challenger brand. Um, it's an exciting place to be, but a word of warning there, not everyone can be a challenger brand. And it's important to to work out where your place is in life. Wouldn't you agree, Sam? Yeah, and this is a, a bit of a challenge and a consideration for the audience now because you say not everyone can be a challenger brand, but it does provoke a, a serious consideration is if you have a brand that's worthwhile and that's worthy and sounds provocative, but this challenger project, the work that you're talking about, there's, there's a, another site, which is um, from, from the authors of this called uh, which, challenger brand um, and the, underneath the challenger project. And they have a great resource there as well. And they, they break out the 10 types of challenger brand strategies that are out there. And a challenger brand is not a brand that challenges somebody, but a brand that challenges something. And it really takes on another brand in the category because they believe there's something that needs to change. And you can already start to hear how this really lives into some of the purpose work that we've been talking about before. And, and Lemonade's challenge is to is to really challenge people's historical relationship with insurance. Now, I bring up Lemonade because we talked about them in the last episode and how their, their mission was crystal clear. But they've become a business that was reported around $67 million of revenue in 2019 which was 200% more than the prior year. But they've actually, in July 2020, they've just d- done their initial public offering. And they that the valuation of this company has surged to $4 billion. Wow. Since, and, and this is in July 2020, which is the middle of some um, difficult economic times and during the pandemic. So it just goes to show if you get the mission right, if you get the challenge right, you really can create a lot of value. The other examples from the Challenger Project is Tony's Chocoloni, which challenges the ethics of the chocolate category, Universal Staland, which challenges a lack of inclusivity and bias in fashion, Xiaomi, challenge why the best technology has to be so expensive. So those are just some of the examples of the challenges Mm. out there. And and as you talked about, Chris, the, the, the challenge could be as a local hero, as the feisty underdog, which I love. It's not just an underdog, feisty underdog, really. The people's champion you mentioned, or is it about being the next generation? Is it about being a missionary and advocate for the, for the category? Or is it about being real and human? And while these are all nuances, it's really, really important to grapple with these because as you've done your research, and in, in the third step, and as as you've kind of made, you've mapped it out and you've done your homework, then the fourth thing I'm saying here is really crafting, creating your brand positioning statement. Now, it really is a short sentence or paragraph that captures the prior steps that we talked about. Think about including language that helps you own a market or own the category. And again, the, the challenger approach really does help you to, to think about that. And what makes you unique and preferred and differentiated, which really will help you create a larger market base. But also go deeper. Don't limit yourself to simple demographics, you know, 18 to 37-year-old women. 
that that's just such a, a lame demographic dis- description. Layer on the psychographics, the consumer needs, the aspirations and dreams and um, profiles. Think about and people's usage and behaviors. Uh, all of this in, in, in a collected way. And also data, data points of what people are actually doing and behaviors. All of that comes together in a very rich way and incorporate that within your positioning statement. And when you're doing that, there, there's some interesting insight from HubSpot, which we, we saw we thought worth sharing, but they just asked four questions to answer before creating your positioning statement. So four questions that they come up with are, who's your target customer? What's your product or service category? What's the greatest benefit of your product or service? And then what's the proof of that benefit? What's the proof point? So all of that comes through when you're crafting your statement. And then step five, we declare that you should bring it to life as a story that you can use. So this is a story that can live across sales, across marketing, across product, across technology, across all the different functions within the organizational business. And you bring it to life because you're considering the brand experience, not just the brand um, brand product or the service. So this means that it doesn't live on paper. It should be part and parcel of running the business and the decisions you make, be they customer facing or advertising choices, the channels or the media or the publications that you you place in and the internal investments um, you, you make or perhaps even the hiring choices that you make. So this is where your brand positioning should show up in the language for your job descriptions, for example, and your um, your communications internally or your external communications, even just how it comes to life in the hold music that you have when mm. people are waiting to use your service. So think about the, the dr- dramatic ways that you could bring this to life. Think of it as a story with relevant elements for your brand and the themes that speak in consumer language and consumer touch points as you go through the consumer, consumer journey and experiences your brand. Basically, everywhere that you interact with consumers. Now, a really clever way to think about this is in terms of content and the message and the the tone that you take. So think about the content you ship and you deliver as perhaps an educator or as an advisor or as an enlightener or perhaps as an entertainer or perhaps you're motivating people. Or another ways to think about how you're helping them express themselves. So all of those different ways to bring your content to life, to bring your brand positioning to life, are absolutely valuable and invaluable, and they're all slightly different. So as we talk about bringing stories, multiple stories that you can use, again, we'll come back to a brand such as Ben and Jerry's, and they're thinking about how you use these stories in partnerships and in interviews and promotional opportunities. But for Ben and Jerry's, there's very definitive rituals that they have as part of their brand. One that I like is the free cone day. So there's a day where you can go and get your free ice cream. Yes, it's kind of a free ice cream day, but it's wrapped around so much more from the brand. They have the Ben and Jerry's Foundation. They have their Caring Dairy initiative. Obviously, the the founders are part of the story and narrative, and they have naming contests for their their products and their brands. And of course, everyone wants to take part and get their name um, suggested and hopefully to win. And then they they collaborate with activists and celebrities and they engage in pop culture. So those are all the multitude of ways that Ben and Jerry's, be it for um, you know, dismantling white supremacy that they're doing of late in their activism, that's on their website as content. But they 
the same brand can talk about serious issues and on another page we have be completely irreverent irreverent and having you know funny or silly names for their products and it all feels holistic and ownable within their brand they they they, they actually do have a product called vanilla but any any other product would be vavavoom vanilla or, or something just wacky or silly but very other very few other brands could come up with stupid names for their ice cream and get away with it that ben and jerry's does Another example that I, I'm a fan of is is the brand Kind. They have their hashtag Kind Awesome, where they celebrate small acts of kindness. They have their Kind Causes, which on a monthly basis, they support individuals and organizations working to make the world a little kinder with $10,000. Yes, they take their name and the meaning of their name, and they translate it into tangible artifacts and tangible actions that you can experience in the marketplace. They have their Kind Foundation, where you know, people celebrate who've gone out of their way to help others in need, 100,000 of them, uh, 100,000 um, prizes that they, they offer up. Uh, and there's another brand that we can both think of called Songkick, which I know you're a huge fan of, Chris. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, Songkick, it's been around for a, a, a fair while now, so the, over sort of 10 years. Um, but why why I originally liked it and uh, and what I thought it sort of uh, really brought to life, uh, at the end of the day, it, it it helps you sort of find gigs that you want to actually go to because they meet your um, music sort of tastes. And it does that by scanning your music library, either your Spotify library or your Apple library, and then recommending you gigs um, based on that those preference. So it's a smart matching tool. Um, however, it actually makes you feel that this is not some sort of technology. It makes you feel that this is by passionate music fans that understand your music taste and want to get closer to it. And I think that the way that it, it does that through the whole of a customer experience is, is a really powerful thing. Um, and you know, certainly the reason why I, I still use Songkick over a lot of other different sort of platforms now. So, yeah, some great examples there. So tomorrow, what do you need to do tomorrow? Well, first thing you need to do is understand whether you are different. And if you don't have an answer, you need to go back to basics. And and also, this this is difficult. Um, you know, if you're more on the analytical side of, of marketing, of a sort of, um, you know, the, the storytelling aspect is not something that you find easily, then use an expert. We didn't name check the the brands that ran those challenger projects earlier, PhD and Eat Big Fish. I haven't worked with Eat Big Fish, but PhD um, certainly helped me sort of craft and formulate that story at The Guardian. And, and there's freelance independents or creative directors out there as well. I work with a guy called Giles Bernard on a lot of a brand work, and, and he, he distills brands into a, a great story. And... And I think that's a, it's an important point that you, you need a storyteller as part of that. And, it, and he sums it up nicely to me when sort of talking about branding. Uh, he, he says it's about knowing who you are, articulating it, being clear, being distinct and being remembered. And, and for me, that, that sort of almost sums up the session, really, Sam. But we haven't finished yet because you're going to give us three key takeaways, aren't you? But before we do that, Chris shameless plug here we're a new show and we're, we're loving the momentum we're getting behind the across the pond marketing transform podcast but we would really make a plea right now for you to pause right now 
go over to iTunes and give us a review, give us five stars, give us a like, whatever it is on the platform. We'd really appreciate some love to help us get some um, some traction on the platforms, but also just to receive a bit of feedback from the audience. So that's a shameless plug. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but it's a good one, Sam. But it's you know your heart's in the right place. So so yeah, okay. So back to three key takeaways, Sam. So firstly. Brand positioning is super important and it helps drive the rigor and the business clarity. So make sure you invest some time and effort. It's not just a template or box checking exercise. Secondly, focus on differentiation. What makes you unique? What really makes you stand out? And we gave you some an abundance of tips from the challenger project efforts that we talked about earlier. And thirdly, use the purpose. The purpose is there. It's a rich resource to mine and use and leverage for content and for your action. Don't go looking for content. Use your purpose for the content. Yeah, well said, well said. And next week's episode, we're going to be looking at how you change or turn rather insights into action. Uh, So thinking about those questions and, and how you question effectively. Uh, to get to the heart of a problem or the opportunity or the threat of a trend. It's a, it's a definite skill. And how you seek out information, dig beneath the surface and, and test your hypothesis. And finally, then what, how you craft and sharpen and use those actionable insights to sort of uh, change behavior within your organization. So uh, slight change in tact, but incredibly important when we think about our agile marketing action plan absolutely chris next week's episode is going to be another blinder as they say in the uk so without further ado until next week have a great week across the pond well that's it for this week's show we hope you enjoyed it find more by visiting marketingtransform.com and click on the subscribe link if you listen via apple spotify soundcloud or anything else then click on follow subscribe or type marketing transformed into search We're a new show, so please leave us a review, comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at marketingtransformedshow at gmail.com.